<clears throat> this podcast is brought to you by the Almamac and Scientific Canada. It was recorded on the traditional territories shared between the Haudenosaunee and Anishinaabe nations. Enjoy. I feel like I just butchered that again, even though we <laughs> we just had the conversation. Okay. My research on <laughs> uh, light adaptation in the in the fish right now. I'm sitting in a kiddie pool, actually. It's, uh, <laughs> it's quite nice. Oh, that would be great. But it's oh, uh, not very professional. in the Arctic that was reported on last year around this time. The whole parallel universe thing, it, it ended up being called out as, as fake and not, and not real. And there's been some good articles that discussed how science communication and the public's trust in science can get hurt from these weird clickbaity titles, but wow, turns out that it's real. You'll have to forgive me, it's really hard to get anything out of this this wormhole type thing, but uh, hopefully Severa finds this before the next episode. Severa, if you get this, could you also... Uh, so, could you do the interview for Thursday, and I'll try my best to be back, but I don't know how I got here, and I don't know if I'll be able to, to edit this one, so... I don't know, this is really weird. Also, could you add something about how to give the, the, the how to give virtual presentations workshop Dr. Bandler is giving on February 18th? Oh, oh no, oh, hold on, I gotta go. Someone's coming. Hey, what's going on everybody? Thanks for tuning back to the Almamac here on 93.3 CFMU or wherever you're listening to this podcast. My name is Severo West, and thank you so much for joining us on another Thursday to hear about another McMaster graduate student's research, what they do inside and outside of the lab, or nowadays inside and inside of the home. So let's jump right in. The Almamac today, for today's episode, we are pleased to welcome a third year PhD candidate, Pip Matharu, who is in the Department of Mathematics and Statistics. How are things going for you today, Pip? Pretty good. Pretty good. good. How's everything with you? Ah, oh, it's good. Um, as, as good as it can be, you know, just staying at home and getting all dressed up when you go to the grocery store. That's it. <laughs> That's it. That's yeah. the only time. Uh, well, Pip, why don't we just dive right in? Can you tell us a little bit about your research? Yeah, so... Um... I, I'm a, a mathematician and I work with fluids and, and in particular I work with turbulence and I'm looking at some theoretical and computational problems that occur in turbulence. And, and you, um, sorry. Oh, I was going to ask, yeah, so can you describe, uh, I know before um, in our little pre-interview where you're pointing to your background, so can you tell us a little bit about what turbulence is and maybe in the context that you study it? Yeah, so um, for those of you who can watch, I have, you know, some turbulent flows behind me. And, uh, you know, you might hear about turbulence whenever you're on an airplane, or you can actually visualize it really simply um, in your home. 
since everyone's at home right now, um, by just kind of turning on your tap. So what you can do is uh, we have fluids around us all, uh, all the time. And if you take your tap and you just open it up a little bit, you can kind of see that the flow is really nice and it's what's called laminar because there's not that much kind of velocity in it. But as soon as you crank that tap open and you see all the bubbles and it starts spurting and everything, that's whenever it becomes a turbulent flow. And essentially, turbulence is uh, a flow that has, you know, certain properties, mathematical properties and physical properties, but it's, it's flows that we really don't understand. They're spatially and um, temporally very complex, and they're very difficult to kind of predict what's going on. And, and that's why there's such a interesting uh, mathematical and, um, you know, physics problem. It's... Uh, Turbulence and fluids are kind of known as, quote unquote, the last unsolved problem of classical mechanics. That's actually really interesting that you mentioned that because um, when I was doing some research for this interview, and I know you also um, told me about the equation, I might be saying it wrong, the Navier-Stokes equation. Yep, um, yep that's right. Out, is, is, it, is it true that that's one of the seven unsolved mathematical problems and that um, and it's called like the millennium uh, I was going to say millennium development yeah. goals, but the, and if you solve it, you get a million dollars. Is that right? Yeah. So uh, at the, at the turn of the millennium, uh, the Clay Institute um, had decided there were seven fundamental and important problems that we want to solve in mathematics. So uh, now proving, you know, existence and uniqueness of solutions for Navier-Stokes is, is one of the, the goals. And we want to, the goal is to, to solve these problems within a hundred years. So we got, you know, about 80 years left, less than 80 years left to, to kind of solve the rest of these problems. But yeah, Navier-Stokes is, it's a very um, simplistic partial differential equation and it can be easily derived from pr first principles. But, um, and we've known it for a couple hundred years, but we still don't fully understand it. You know, we want to understand the existence and uniqueness of solutions. Um, because when we have an equation, we like to have solutions and we would like them to be unique. And if we can't prove that, it, it kind of says, do we need a new model or, you know, what's going on? Great. And Pip, if we can also focus in on your research. So you talked to us a little bit about turbulence and saying how it's um, really unpredictable. So what is it that you do in your research? Are you trying to develop a model that can predict turbulence? Um, so yes and no. So um, the problem that I'm fundamentally working on is a computational problem for my main thesis project, uh, which is, um, as I had mentioned, turbulence is uh, spatially and temporally complex. So if we wanted to compute these with computers, we have to use a, a lot of data points. And we have to kind of, if we want to solve problems that we're we're interested in, you know, um, whether it's a biologist uh, using it for weather predictions, an engineer trying to develop, you know, uh, maybe cars or um, airplanes, you, you really have to use a lot of data points. And, and the problem is, is even with su supercomputers, these simulations can take months, years or so, which we really don't want to wait for. So, um, so with, uh, with my work, um, there is something called a large eddy simulation, which is where you take the equations and you filter them. And that is, um, you only look at and you only compute the large scale components. So the, the stuff that dominates the flow. 
um, of, of the system. And with, um, with that, what happens is, is that you run into something called a closure problem, where you have more uh, unknowns than equations, to, and you can't solve for all your unknowns. So you have to substitute in some, some additional term into the equation to compensate for all the stuff that you've kind of truncated and, and thrown out, thrown into the garbage. So all that smaller stuff that happens in the flows. And um, what I'm trying to do is that there's some hypothesis and, and there's some, some work that, a lot of work actually has been done in this field. Um, and, you know, kind of they, they came into, uh, in, into use, you know, in 1960 or so. But a lot of these models have been produced in a empirical sense. And I'm trying to add some mathematical rigor into this field. So I'm trying to, I'm using a optimization based uh, scheme in order to um, optimally find the best uh, closure model with um, a certain mathematical structure. And uh, this will shed light on, you know, the fundamental performance limitations of these kind of models. And, you know, whether it's good or bad, it, it's good for the fluids community to understand if we use these kind of models, this is the best you could do. Mm. Whether we can do it, if we can match kind of the very accurate flows identically, or if, you know, the best you can do isn't that great, it, it still sheds light on kind of the, the field as a whole. Okay, and if you can help me wrap my head around what it means to have the best closure model. So I think you were talking about it at the end, um, how that it can, um, uh, would it be like, the closure model ha which has the least number of unknowns or that can be best applied to the particular problem? What, what would make a closure model good or the best? Yeah, so that, that all depends on how we set up the problem itself. So it depends on, uh, at the end of the day, what I'm doing is, um, is an optimization problem. So it depends on how we define best. It could be we want things to um, match up in space um, to be identical of the flow over, you know, these points in space over time. Or we could define it to be, um, if you're familiar maybe with Fourier space, which um, is a frequency space, we could say we want uh, the frequencies to match over all time. It, it really depends on how we define best. And there are uh, a number of... Um, diagnostic quantities that we test in order to kind of say, hey, this one looks really good, or no, this one, this one's not performing that well. So we can look at the, the various types of energy, we could look at the correlation, we could look at um, uh, kind of kind of statistical um, structures and, and stuff like that. And Pip, I'm, I'm really interested as a, as a non-mathematics or stats um, graduate student, I'm really interested to know what this looks like, what your lab works look, looks like day to day, right? So you're talking about adding some sort of mathematical rigor to your work. You know, for, for an individual that's not involved in this field, I'm just imagining you sitting, at, sitting erasing a lot of equations on a piece of paper. Um, so if you can speak to that a little bit, what kind of tools do you use for your work? Uh, yeah, so kind of sitting down writing things on a piece of paper is pretty accurate. Um, <laughs> I also, uh, I do a lot of coding. Um, so I'm, I'm very fortunate. I'm one of the very fortunate grad students whose work hasn't detrimentally been affected by this pandemic. 
um, because I just need a pen, paper, and laptop and a good internet connection to really do my work. Um, so yeah, so uh, you know, some days I sit down and I try to work things out mathematically. Um, and then once I get to a point where I can't do mathematics anymore, I transfer it over to the to the computer and then try to compute things and kind of go back and forth. Uh, it's kind of a, I would say a maybe a 60-40 split for 60% of the time I'm coding and well debugging. And then 40% of the time I'm kind of doing math and reading and doing all that kind of stuff. Um, okay, and Pep, I'm also really interested to learn about how you got um, interested and so passionate about this field and kind of um, how you knew you wanted to pursue it and that graduate school was the right choice for you. Okay, I will say, you know, my academic career has, was a little nonlinear in my undergrad, so. I like that, still keeping the <laughs> theme. So um, I did my undergrad uh, at Western and uh, I had went to Western uh, for a very different field um, in kind of statistics and actuarial science. And I, I found out that I didn't really like that field. So I kind of explored a, little, a couple other things. I was at one point gonna go into engineering and then I eventually took a physics course for the first time in my uh, life. And uh, I fell in love with physics. And then I kind of found applied mathematics and I ended up doing a degree in, uh, an undergrad degree in physics and applied mathematics. And uh, through those courses and, and through actually, I, I gotta give credit to my professors at Western. They, they really inspired me to kind of keep learning and, and I learned about numerical analysis and, and I learned a little bit of optimization and I learned about partial differential equations. And I thought that this stuff was cool. And this, this stuff is, you know, uh, something that I would really like to, to look at. And um, well, one day I was kind of just chatting to uh, some of the, the grad students at, at Western and they just kind of said, why don't you do grad school? And, you know, there's, there's great schools around and, and you, you should, you know, it'd be good for you. You, you seem like a, a computational person. So like, why don't you do some form of high performance computing? So I said, sure. Uh, and I started Googling and eventually I found who is my supervisor now, um, Bartek Protoss. And he, he, him and I sat down and had a conversation uh, once I had actually applied to grad school. And he kind of told me, I read about some of his problems and you know, we sat down, had a conversation, and I kind of said, yep, this is what I want to do. <laughs> yeah, and if it's so, Pip, it's so interesting how much, um, I guess, luck and serendipity is involved in our choices to go to grad school, because it was similar experience for me, right? Just kind of like talking with people and be like, oh, yeah, okay, I guess I can do this. Yeah, I like learning. I like writing. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Let's do this. Yeah. So I always find that interesting. I think also a really um, interesting to, thing, too, is how Sometimes being a graduate student, you have to be um, comfortable with your research, perhaps taking some time to be um, transformed into policy, for instance, or perhaps not seeing those direct implications right away. Because I feel maybe in some other fields, um, like I'm in science, um, in some other fields, you know, maybe you want to see that direct impact of your research right away. And we know that it takes some time, at least, if ever, um, it being... Uh, transformed in policy or having certain implications. Yeah, definitely. It, uh, it's a very slow process and that's for sure. And uh, I'm sure you know that failures will come along the way um, for sure. 
and it, it's all about, I find grad school is just about perseverance and kind of just sticking it out. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, failures are so common, but I just feel like we only ever hear about the successes of people. Um, yeah. And we only, we only ever think about the failures of ourselves, but failures are very common. We just don't talk about it. Yeah, yeah. I wish, you know, sometimes I wish that there was a, uh, I was talking to my supervisor about this recently, there was a, a journal of just failures. So things that didn't work. Um, because nobody talks about the failures and uh, it sucks. And especially in, you know, today's um, world where we're all working from home, we can't see our office mates that, you know, I, I know that that I failed tons of times and my office mates were like, ah, don't worry about it. You, we've all been there before. Yeah. <laughs> or like spending hours, like trying to figure out the coding problems, seeing those red lines, the errors, and you're just like on staff exchange, like why is this <laughs> working? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. That's interesting. The point you bring up about the journal. I feel like I heard about something similar to that because um, I'm sure you're familiar with publication bias, the idea that only, um, positive findings are published, whereas the null results or like studies that didn't find any effect aren't published. Um, So I feel like there was a journal that might have been dedicated to that, but that could have also been something I dreamed. I don't know. (laughs) Interesting. I I should kind of start Googling this after after we're done here. That'll definitely be my target journal. (laughs) I'll say that. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Well, Pip, it's, it was really interesting to learn about um, your research and really the, the computational um, side of things. And I'm happy I also learned a bit about how you actually do the work. Um, Cause I wasn't, I at least wasn't fully aware of that when um, individuals who may be involved in math, stats or physics, really like how their um, experiments or lab work plays out. So, uh, so thanks for highlighting that for us. Um, I am however also interested in things that you enjoy doing when you're not debugging or not erasing all your mathematical problems. So if you can speak to that a little bit. Yeah, so um, I'm typically, I, I like to be a very active person. Um, I go to the gym early in the morning. I, you know, when, when I'm allowed to, I play soccer, I try to rock climb. I like biking, um, hiking, squash, tennis, any sport, I'll, I'll give it a shot. Um, and then in addition to that, I, um, I also like working on cars. Um, I, my, my dad uh, owned a uh, garage. So growing up, I kind of was always working in a garage. So it just has become a hobby now. Okay, so I have one question for you, Pip. How worried should, be, should we be when the check engine sign comes on? Asking for a uh, sign. Does it make a noise? No, it's just, the engine. <laughs> it might, it may or may not always turn on every time you turn on the car, it just <laughs> always stays lit up and you just pray and keep well, driving. It, you know, it, it might be simple as something as simple as like one time you didn't tighten the gas cap enough. And uh, that, as a result, the check engine light has just stayed on forever, or it could be something bad. I will say if you ever see the check engine light flashing, don't, don't risk it. Take it to a garage. Okay. Okay. Good to know. Getting some car flashing. Here. Yeah. Flashing is bad. Okay. Good to know. So do friends or colleagues come to you like asking about like, if you really enjoy this or is it just kind of like something on the side or like you just kind of like tinker with cars? Um, definitely friends who know me and I guess anyone listening to this now, um, <laughs> they, they give me a call, uh, whenever they're on the highway and they're like, Hey, oh. It's making this kind of noise. 
what should I do? Um, I definitely get that. Um, it's been a while since I've, I've actually physically worked on a car, but uh, I definitely wouldn't be shy to get my hands dirty again. Nice. And I feel like um, staying at home has kind of forced some of us to either go back to the hobbies that we used to have or rediscover new ones. Um, so hopefully that's given you an opportunity uh, to do something like that. Yeah. Um, yeah, definitely. A lot of my hobbies have kind of been put off to the side due to the pandemic because we can't really do them. But, you know, there's there's hope on the horizon. So uh, we'll see in the summer, maybe. Yeah, yeah, we're we're optimistic, but maybe not too optimistic, but we're optimistic. Yeah. Okay, well, thank you so much, Pip, for coming on the show today. It was so wonderful learning about your really important work and also the things you enjoy doing, I guess, when you're inside your house, maybe not outside yet. Um, and thank Thanks. you to... Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, and, and thank you to all of you who are listening here on 93.3 CFMU or wherever you get this podcast from. It is appreciated. We will be back next week, as always, with another graduate student from McMaster, where you can learn about their work and things that they enjoy doing outside their lab. Thanks so much again, Pip. Thanks. Take care, everyone. Hey, everybody. It's Adam again. I think things are starting to clear up out here, and uh, I'm starting to get a bit of a signal, so... Hopefully I'll be able to email out to Severa. I think she said she was going to be talking to some uh, some guy in the math department about Navier-Stokes. So hopefully you enjoyed that. I know I would. Um, but maybe before we go, I can uh, I can get Severa to play some of the uh, interview I had with Dr. John Bandler about the uh, the the workshop he's putting on. So. Yeah, Severa, maybe if you can do that, that'd be great. Take it, take it away. Obviously, things have got to change. So we've talked a lot about presentation skills and like how to get your point across, giving presentations in previous episodes, but that was always an in-person type thing. And well, we're not really doing that anymore. Um, so the last time we spoke, um, it was off camera, but, uh, we were kind of throwing some ideas around and you were telling me a lot about the, the things that you had been thinking of and, um, and working on. And I'm mm -hmm. trying to employ one right now. I don't know if you've noticed a difference. I've raised my, <laughs> I've raised my camera. I know. I've been staring into the black hole. <laughs> you are more or less looking into the camera. You're not quite looking into the camera. You're actually looking at the screen. So the camera is is there and, and I'm I'm doing the same thing. It's mm -hmm. it's human nature to look at a human being speaking. It's it's unnatural to look into the camera, which is where you really are. And I know that you're down here, uh, <laughs> but that's where you should be looking. So to me, coming back to the those two, I think the two most important things that I would think that are important for a virtual presentation of any kind is what does your backdrop look like? And, and to be truly engaging, you really need to look into the camera. That means you have to forget what's here. You have to kind of convince yourself that's where your audience is. Now, it's easier if you have memorized. And of course, with three-minute thesis, uh, students have to memorize this. So once they've memorized, they can look into the camera. Or if you're speaking off the cuff like I am now, I'm still looking into the camera. 
Now I'm looking down at the screen where your your image is. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing is the backdrop. It's preferable to have the lines vertical behind you. Now, in my case, I have a couple of paintings on easels. And because they're on easels, it's normal that they may not be quite vertical. Mm-hmm. So really, you it, it's it. I, I usually I usually cringe when I see eminent people, prominent people with backdrops where they look like they're looking down at their laptop cameras or looking down like this and the cameras looking up with with strange perspectives at the back. It's mm-hmm. distracting. And one of the things if you notice when you look at uh, TV talking heads, and we have a lot of TV talking heads now, and they're all virtual, typically, you'll notice that the producers have clearly worked with those uh, interviewees before they come on camera. And because lines are all incredibly, by coincidence, vertical, mm, okay. almost, almost, you, almost entirely vertical, which means that, you know, and that's clearly one of the things that producers want. It looks odd on a TV program with a bunch of talking heads with some lines are doing this and some lines, unless it's, unless it's deliberate, unless it's deliberately part of the backdrop. So okay, you, don't think, you don't want it to be accidental. So having those vertical lines and remembering that what's in your backdrop becomes part of the impression that you're giving. And that's an indelible impression. It's hard to let that go. Mm-hmm. Um, I definitely do not recommend virtual environments because of the strange glitches and it looks kind of amateurish to do that. Mm-hmm. But that's the two issues. Look into the camera vertical lines and there's more but i'll, I'll let you ask I'm, sorry i'm doing a lot of talking here yeah yeah so so maybe we can uh so first point i want one of the things you know when you're presenting in real life you know you're often talking about like do you move around and do you walk around and how do you use your hands and who do you look at in the audience right out the window but we have a whole new set of of things that we should be thinking about so Based on those, those two things that you were talking about, the sort of eye contact with the camera and the vertical lines, maybe we can do a little bit of a, a fix-up of my camera. Maybe, okay, so let's just do an experiment. Right now I'm looking at the camera for anybody who's watching on YouTube. So I'm talking to you. This should look more normal, I think. Right. And this is me looking at Dr. Bandler on the screen. Right. So this feels normal for me and it probably looks a little bit weird for viewers is that basically right. the so here's another extreme this is me looking over the camera if i maybe had some slides on the wall or something again it's not really i'm guessing you're feeling pretty weird about me staring <laughs> into space like this is that right but, but not only that uh, uh not only that adam imagine you were looking at another uh, you had dual monitors and you were looking over there or in fact, the slides that you were presenting mm. are there and the camera is over here and you're constantly looking in this direction. Um, you know, that may be okay for private meetings where they're really intensely technical and so right. on, but you can't watch that. You know, it, it's not human. If, if mm-hmm. we were having coffee, if we were doing this over coffee, it would seem unnatural for you to be looking down at your coffee and for me to be looking down at my coffee and we never make eye contact. I mean, mm-hmm. we've evolved as humans to look into each other's eyes. So here's, here's a, a potential strategy that I was just thinking about. Um, so I, I recently bought an attachment webcam 
so I can move it around. So two ideas. One, maybe I can like move it a little bit lower so that it's closer to where <laughs> you show up on the screen. The other one, maybe I can just like put little googly eyes on it and then pretend I'm speaking to the little camera guy. <laughs> yeah. The other thing is, by the way, don't don't put don't have yourself full screen. Just push the 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 zoom window, for example, higher up so that it's a little closer to the camera. Okay. Right. Right. And yeah. so the, the other thing that you pointed out was the, the what's in the background and the vertical lines. So when I first set up my camera, I was kind of set up like this, which was not ideal. Um, no, it, was made me look like I... it was much more extreme. <laughs> it was extreme. And I also am sort of a mythical creature at this point. <laughs> I know. Work proper. I know. Yeah, very good. <laughs> So but anyway, I, you know, there's, there's lots more. There's lots more we can talk about on on all this, mm -hmm. um, and that's that's also the diff. You know, let's think for a moment about in-person, virtual, and if you were doing a video, mm -hmm. you're doing a video. Now, in person, you would walk around. You might, you know, address someone over here. You address someone over there. If I were doing this right now, and I was sort of addressing somebody you would know right away I was not looking at a human. I think we are keenly aware, I think through facial expressions or whatever, if, if there was really a person there, you would know that I was addressed. I mean, unless I was a really good actor, you would know if I were faking that there was somebody there that I was talking to. Mm. But, but in, in person, you walk around, you look at this person, you go, it looks natural. Here we have a fixed stare in a in a in a, a particular a particular point, and and when we look around, you know, when it's an in-person presentation like a workshop, or you do look people in the eyes. So if you like that and you want to hear more, head over to scientificcanada.ca. Bye.